Welcome to season two of the Change the World podcast. This season, I'm going to be speaking not only with nonprofit founders, but with other nonprofit leaders, such as fundraising experts, communications executives, and board members. We'll be addressing some of the big issues facing Jewish nonprofits today and brainstorming ways that we can come together to address them. Thanks for joining. Okay, hi everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm really excited, really excited. It's an honor and a privilege today to be here with Rabbi Tzvi Glock, who is the founder and CEO of Amudim. Rabbi Glock, thank you so much for being here. No, thank you. Thank you for having me. So for those of us who don't know who you are, which I, I would imagine most of us do, but please tell us a bit about yourself, your background, um, how you got started. Born and raised in Brooklyn uh, into a family of uh, very involved in public service. My father, may he live and be well, was one of the founding members of Hatsala, worked in government uh, professionally his entire career. When I was 19 years old, two of my friends passed away back to back. One of them unfortunately committed suicide. The other one died in a car accident while he was high on drugs. That got me to start volunteering at our place at that point, which was a drop-in center, still is, and a great place, but a drop-in center in Brooklyn. And that was really how I got involved in this field. As far as, you know, at that point I was working, I went to paramedic school, I was in business for a while, and I was always still dealing with these things, quote unquote, on the side, but really it was my full-time job without doing it. So uh, one of my good friends pulled me aside one day and said, stop trying to make money. You're not good at it. Just focus on helping people. I then started I guess, helping people full-time, but without any umbrella or name, let's call it. And then uh, about eight years ago, um, Maishi Wolfson made a bris for a grandson. And right after the bris, he had introduced me to uh, Mendy Klein, Oliver Shalom from Cleveland. And on Maishi's back porch that day is where the uh, idea of Amudim was born. And that's how Amudim got started. I mean, it still took a few months, but that was the uh, beginning point. Wow. So for those who don't know, what does Amudim do? So what we do now versus what we did is a little interesting. When we first started, the uh, mission was to destigmatize sexual abuse, mental illness, and addiction issues within the community by creating awareness and by getting community leaders, clergy, as well as schools, et cetera, to be more open to addressing it. Very quickly after that, people started calling with individual situations that needed help, whether their loved one was in crisis or they were. So we then hired a few therapists and started having them do what we call comprehensive clinical case management. So they're not actually providing any therapeutic care, but we felt it was better if therapists were the ones dealing with the families, loved ones, et cetera, and really taking a 30,000 foot view of the total issue plus the micro and assisting not just in finding the proper placement or the proper therapist or the proper programs, but also in dealing with the family members, loved ones, you know, schools, if the primary breadwinner is the one that's going for treatment, you know, figuring something out with the local grocery, whatever it might be that will help that family, you know, get towards a uh, better and healthier, safer place. The other main component is the awareness component. We've put out so far eight PSA videos, some of them music, some of them you know, more of uh, theatrical pieces, all of which have been amazing, award-winning in the industry and the nonprofit sector. We think we have a combined, since inception, over 5 million views uh, of all of our different videos. So that's the uh, next component. 
And then the third component is creating education programs for schools, whether it's, you know, evening events of awareness for parents, staff, you know, students alike, or whether it's actual curriculum work, it's just really helping on the preventative side. And then when COVID started, not really as Amudim, but really more as some of the other hats that I wear, but it just sort of morphed into Amudim, was uh, we started dealing with a lot of crisis relating to travel for Israel, for funerals, emergencies, Baruch Hashem, also for people that needed to go for simchas, for you know students. Uh, again, not really the uh, focus of Amudim, but I guess during a time of crisis or a global pandemic, you know, wherever people can step up is where it's expected. So where we do what we can to help people in need. I'm sure the last two, almost two years now have been, I, I don't want to say crazy, but a, a huge time of, of need for your organization. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, we've, I think we had just about 4,900 active cases uh, this past year. And we're, I mean, now we're noticing a huge increase just this week alone as a result of the uh, situation that, uh, you know, recently took place in Israel with Chaim Walder taking his own life after, uh, you know, many victims came forward. And that, you know, it's a sad story all around. But I, I got to say, I guess the good part about it is that people can't brush things under the rug anymore like they uh, used to. And we're noticing that on a few fronts. So our caseload has really jumped up the last week and a half as a result of that. But even if not, you know, we saw a huge jump compared to the previous year, close to a 50% increase in cases, which also means that we need more staff, we need more resources. And it's just, it's not, it's not easy. I got to tell you, it's, it's tough, but uh, thank God, you know, we're here and we keep on plugging. Can you tell me about the structure of the organization? Is it mostly staff, mostly volunteers or a combination? No, it's, uh, it is mostly staff. Um, we find, or we found rather, that we have attempted to get more and more people involved as volunteers. It's very, very difficult when dealing with crisis-related matters or mental health-related matters to rely on volunteers. Not that they don't want to do well, because they really do, but what ends up happening is they get busy, other things come up, and it's very difficult. Plus, you know, we need people long-term. You know, the average person who reaches out to Amudim for help, you know, can be with us for 16 to 18 months. So we want to make sure that the person who's providing the care is really, is a professional, is a mental health professional, is going to be there. And, you know, and then if there is a transition or case managers do leave, we hire new ones, you know, that does happen, that there's a healthy turnover. I mean, we'd love to find a way to utilize volunteers. And, you know, I've had this discussion with the, the UJA head of volunteer programs and they're like, you know, people want to volunteer. I'm like, that's great. And I, I, and I'm sure there is a place for volunteers, but so far where we've tried, it just hasn't worked. And they're also not accountable, you know, so it gets a little tricky when, you know, well, where were you? Well, I am my cousin's bar mitzvah. Well, there's not much we can say because, you know, you don't owe us anything. Right. And I'm sure it provides a sense of security for the people who are calling to know that this is a trained staff member who's sticking with the organization and they have the credentials and not just someone who's like, you know, has good intentions, but may not be qualified. Absolutely. Okay, amazing. Do you have like a typical day, or I don't know if there's such a thing in your world, but that you can describe to us what a day in the life of Rabbi Gluck looks like? Typical day? I, I don't, I probably haven't had one of those ever. I mean, the one common denominator is hopefully I wake up every morning. That's usually uh-huh. good. And hopefully yeah. I get to go to sleep at night. But that sometimes doesn't happen. Right. No, but my days, there's no such thing as a typical day. You know, in addition to, 
being the CEO of Amudim, I also deal a lot with some of the crises. I don't really deal with clinical matters, thank God. We have an amazing clinical team, clinical director, two clinical supervisors, and then the case managers. But there's, you know, a lot of some times that there might be something of very sensitive nature that needs some heavy lifting or someone's, you know, if I have to convince, let's say, a rabbi on a case, you know, that what he's trying to tell people to do is wrong. Or if I have to meet with government agencies, law enforcement, you know, district attorneys, you know, we have a bunch of cases, you know, with the FBI. So there's a lot of times that we're dealing with things that I have to get involved with, you know, the nitty gritty. And I'm also fortunately or unfortunately, but I am also the only fundraiser for Amudim. So I'm dealing with like balancing those jobs all at the same time. So there is nothing typical. I mean, thank God the staff are amazing and they make my life a lot easier. I, I try to get to the office in the morning. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I get diverted for another emergency and that's just life. I do try to keep to my schedule, but let's be honest, as you saw yourself now, we were scheduled to meet a while ago and something came up and it just, that's, that's just part of the life. And, and I appreciate, by the way, your patience in that, but that's something that, you know, these are just unexpected items that, that occur on a daily basis. So there really is no typical day. It's just, I, I, my staff, I would say also there's no typical day. I mean, they might work the same amount of hours, but no two calls are alike. But for me, it's really, uh, there is no such thing. Honestly, I, I wish there was. I could sometimes be in the office till 11, 12 o'clock at night. And sometimes I'll leave at four o'clock and I'll be home with my kids and have dinner with them and then go back out, you know, afterwards, which I try to do at least two to three nights a week just to spend time with my kids. Um, and then I may go back out till, you know, 12, one o'clock dealing with other things. So there really isn't. I mean, I, you know, my assistant does do a great job in trying to schedule my day as best as she could, but she also spends just as much time apologizing for, you know, my inability to follow through. I think people understand when you're doing the work that you're doing, that some of the admin stuff has to get pushed to the side. So you Absolutely. mentioned a few things that are very challenging. If you had to pick what, what would you see your greatest challenge is in running a modem? The greatest challenge I would say is, is raising funds. That's definitely the number one challenge. And I know you have annually the event that you just had, that amazing full day event, which I think brings in, I would imagine, a significant portion of your budget for the year. That event used to cover the entire operating budget. And then it started covering, you know, 80% and 70%. And this past year, uh, which was a few weeks ago, uh, we raised about $5.5 million and our estimated budget for 2022 is going to be just north of $10 million. Mm -hmm. So while it's an amazing, you know, fundraiser, um, I still have to spend a lot of time trying to raise another $5 million for this year. This past year, 2021, we closed out, I think, at $8.3 million. We'll know for sure in the next few days as the accounting department finishes everything up. But, you know, it's been a, a great growth and that is definitely the hardest part. And it's, it's hard for a few reasons. Number one is in general, and, and this is, I, I speak to colleagues of mine in other mental health related organizations, you know, regardless of what they do, we don't have an alumni association, so to speak. You know, a lot of the people that we've helped, they don't, and, and we yeah, understand this, but we understand it. It makes perfect sense. And there's no, it's just a fact. So they're not really jumping at the rooftops and saying, oh, Amudim helped, let's help them back. There are a few, but very, 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 you know, few and far between. It really, it's just, it's, it's not like, a, so we don't really have the alumni association. The people that don't appreciate what we do, which is a good thing for them, thank God, 
but to them, it's also not a charity that talks to them because why should they support something that is not speaking to them? So we're like stuck in a very unique, you know, predicament, whereas, you know, some other organizations that deal with, you know, happier things with infertility or other matters, they can, you know, do an event and, you know, X amount of kids were brought into this world and somebody can get up and share their story. And, you know, I'm here today because of A, B, C, and D. And, you know, and, and there's like a, a better appeal to it. Um, I think that's part of what we're, you know, what we're struggling with. But I got to tell you, thank God. And I mean this wholeheartedly. It's nothing short of miracles that we've actually beaten our goals every year and surpassed it. And it just shows that people do care. It's a lot of work and it's hard, but it's also very heartwarming when, you know, you see the results and you see that people are actually stepping up to the plate. Wow. That's, that's incredible. And I hear what you're seeing where a lot of organizations do deal with sensitive topics, but when there's a happy ending, the person is maybe more comfortable versus here, even if there is a happy ending, they're out of crisis now, for them to come out and admit that this is what it took to get them, there is a more painful thing to do. Do you feel that it's gotten better over the last few, maybe five to 10 years, or has the stigma lifted a bit? I I think overall, community-wide, there's definitely been a, a tremendous amount of increase as far as destigmatization, as far as people reaching out for help. As far as at the end of the day, a person getting up and saying, you know, I was abused and I was wanted to end my life and this is where I was heading and now I'm here today. There are not many people that want to say it and we understand it. I mean, I, I fully understand it and I respect it. First of all, it's not that's got nothing to do with stigma. Like people don't want to relive the horrors that they had. And at the end of the day, like it or not, that Amudim does bring back the worst time in people's lives. You know, that's what they equate it to. So we certainly understand that, but our increase of case volume and calls, and I mean, over 120,000 calls in 2021 alone, you know, is a clear indication that the world is definitely changing, you know, in the sense of people reaching out. I mean, we still, you know, say that for every person that calls us, there's got to be at least 20 that should, but again, people are feeling more comfortable. So overall, things are definitely, you know, getting better in that aspect, actual specifics and speaking about their own stories are much more complex. So do you think that's what's missing and and that's what's really creating the challenge in fundraising is that lack of the first person storytelling or the ambassadorship? Again, it's hard to tell. I didn't really go to fundraising school, learned everything on my own. But when I, I look at what other organizations do and, you know, see how people are getting up and sharing how this place did this for me, or I had no money and I was in poverty and they found me housing or whatever it might be. That is certainly something that seems to be very powerful that we don't really have that ambassadorship, you know, the way other organizations do. And we're trying to figure out ways around it because realistically, we don't really see that happening and, you know, for sure not anytime soon. So can you give me an example of something you've tried, like in terms of getting around that issue? Sure. But this is where it becomes a, you know, a great catch 22. So we've tried to do the uh, Amudim Communities Program, which is basically where we would like put out what we're doing in any community. And I'm a real data freak. And, you know, we use Salesforce connected with Power BI with an AI component as well. So I'll, I could sit with somebody and they can give me their zip code and I could tell them, everything, of course, no names, but everything going on. And the reason why we use Power BI is for that reason. So I'll never, by accident, slip up. Nobody will see it. So we tried that. Then we got destroyed. 
where people were calling us, community leaders saying, how can you put out how many cases of sex abuse and addiction we had in our community that's making the community look bad, you know? So we tried that. That didn't work as well as we would have liked. And then the corporate sponsors that were sponsoring that ad campaign, they got called from people saying, how can you sponsor such a campaign? So then they pulled their funding. So then we couldn't even run the ads, even if I would say, you know, jump in the lake, this is the reality. It became difficult. So that's one thing we tried doing to get around it. And then really, there hasn't been much else that we've tried. I mean, we've done a few events here and there at people's houses, you know, where they invite their own friends, you know, their own colleagues, but, you know, not really at that same scale. I mean, we do, you know, and our annual event is really the main not just for fundraising, but also awareness. I mean, you know, now we have the ultimate trifecta. We finished our event. We always see an increase of call volume. Then this other story comes out. We see an increase of call volume. I publish an article, you know, that gets posted online, increase of call volume. Another PSA video comes out. So what we find is that when we do all these different awareness components, whether it's as a response to an emergency, tragedy, abuse case, or whether it's just something as, you know, an event or something of that nature, we find that the people calling for help increase, but not necessarily those who are supporting it. And again, being that I'm doing it all myself on that aspect, it also makes it much more difficult because the same way I just canceled on you today and had to reschedule, you know, doing that to donors doesn't work as well, but it's life. So, what would be your next step if you know budget wasn't an issue and all these challenges aside and you say okay next step closer to our mission so really the next step what it should be and which we are heading towards is to actually bring in higher professional development staff whether it's you know one two three people i mean listen at the end of the day we're this past year was over an eight million dollar budget there are very few organizations with a budget that size that don't have an entire development team and there's a bunch of different reasons why that's always been a hurdle. You know, we the board approves it and then something else comes up and we need the money, you know, for a different urgent matter or component of something that must be addressed. Or, you know, we have a therapy subsidy fund that has now been depleted. So it's like one of those like, yes, we all understand that if we we have and we need a real development team in place, and we are actually actively working towards that. We we have been for a little bit over. We started about three years ago, but then with COVID, it became very, very difficult. So it wasn't even an option to hire anybody because like there wasn't really how to raise funds, you know, other than online types of events. But now that things seem to be loosening up, we're back, you know, we're back heading into that angle. So that's really our next big step is to um, have a real fundraising machine built into the organization. Yeah, that would be the logical, I think, next up for an organization of this scale. That's kind of where I was thinking as well. So you mentioned like things starting to shift. If you had to guess in terms of your organization and maybe the Jewish nonprofit world in general, what do you think is going to be changing significantly in the next three to five years? So, I mean, there's a couple of different things. First of all, you know, I'm very proud of the fact that transparency above all. So, and this was even before I knew the value of it. It was because of my background and helping other organizations that were you know, having financial issues and I would try to help them fix up how they were operating. So I had a little bit of an upper hand when we started Amudim. For example, we have our 990s and our audited financials posted on our website for all to see. You know, yes, the law states you need to make your previous three years 
of 990s available, which anyone can find online anyway, but it's not my money. It's the public's money. So we put our financials up there as well. Like there's no, no secrets. That's certainly a way of the future. We have found that, especially with the philanthropic foundations, trusts, and a lot of the larger donors with larger capacity, you know, they want to see that there's real transparency. And that's definitely something that for a very long time has been missing, you know, you say specifically in, in our community. Plus, I have to say a very big thank you. The UJA sponsored my going to Columbia University for a nonprofit wow. uh, leadership program that they have in conjunction with Columbia. I, I will say, first of all, I firmly believe that that program is what saved Amudim during COVID. And I was not a student. So, you know, I mean, I went to 14 high schools in three and a half years. Uh, you know, me sitting through real classes and doing work was not my forte, but I did it. And it really saved us. And I do think that there's a big push in the nonprofit sector, especially that I'm noticing now in, you know, within the Orthodox community of doing a lot more professional development, whether it's current staff being better trained or hiring people that have, you know, certain training or experience is also very important. And one of the other components on the bigger scale is like Amudim, for example, we have a zero nepotism clause, period, end of story. There is nobody in Amudim who can say, oh, I'm giving my son-in-law a job, my daughter-in-law, brother-in-law, my cousin, my, my wife's friend. It doesn't, you know, even friends, by the way, we're like, we're, we're very, very strict about that component. And we find that a lot of times, you know, organizations, when they do get into trouble, it's not because they're bad. It's because, and I, I say this, you know, wholeheartedly, it's because they get caught up in things. It's so easy to, you know, okay, but my sister-in-law needs a job. I got to do it. You know, we would never, ever do that by us. And we're noticing that that trend is also, you know, starting to take place. And, and the real trick is maintaining best practices. You know, best practices means best practices, not we want to be best, but we have to be the best. And in order to be the best, you also, you know, have to be able to accept constructive criticism. And I always tell people all the time, whether it's my staff, whether it's clients, whether it's vendors, if people have an issue with something, I'd love to know about it. And I'm not scared to hear about it because it helps us, you know, do what we can to better whatever the services are. Amazing. Thank you. So I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I do want to ask a bit because I know I have some listeners who are maybe earlier on in the nonprofit world and still learning. If there's something that you can share from your nonprofit leadership course, I know it was probably pretty extensive, but something small that you can share that might inspire or help uh, some of the people listening. I'd love to hear that. Yeah, so there's a couple of things that, that I think really, you know, stand out in a very, very strong way. Number one, and, you know, we always heard this growing up as kids, you know, you have two ears and one mouth, so listen more than you speak. But that is really very, very important, especially in the nonprofit sector, when you're, you know, people often ask, what's the most powerful tool that a, a fundraiser has? And people go, oh, their mouth, because they can sell the organization. And the answer is no, it's your ears. So you can hear what the donor is looking to give. The same thing applies dealing with a board of directors. I'm very proud to say that we are very much a board-run organization. There is no major decision made without the board of directors' involvement. And that's crucial. All too often, people that are starting out in the nonprofit world, they'll just be like, oh, I need to get my tax exempt status. So I'll take three friends and they'll just be on the board. And then, you know, we'll see what happens from there. And those people, you know, end up being dead weight, but then other people don't really get involved because they don't take it seriously. So for anyone who's starting out, proper board 
leadership, people actually will follow and allow them to lead is extremely, extremely crucial. And is also very important where there could never be a situation where one person has the final say. It's in addition to being unethical, it's also not practical. So again, in, in the nonprofit world, we're dealing with the public's money that is going to support the public. So the best thing that we can do is make sure we do that right. Some of the skills that they've taught, though, is very interesting, is like, you know, how to do presentations to the board of directors, how to ask for something in a way where you'll hopefully get the answer you're looking for, as opposed to coming off antagonistic or, you know, uh, blaming them, you know, listen, at the end of the day, no matter who board members are, if they're a board member for one organization, they're probably involved in a few others and their time is usually limited. At least that's the ones you want. You know, if you get someone who has nothing else to do with their life and they're not involved in other things, then they won't be that involved in yours either. So, you know, my father's joke is always, you want to find a busy person to do something for you because if they're busy, they'll find a way to get it done. So you want to look for the proper board. And the other thing that's very, very important, think of a nonprofit as a business when running it operationally. The same way when people run a business, they make sure that every I is dotted, every T is crossed, do the same when it comes to a nonprofit. All too often, people don't view nonprofits as a business, and therefore they get lax about certain things. And that's that's completely not healthy or helpful for any organization, no matter of the size. So again, I had a little bit of an upper hand because I started after have already having some experience in helping nonprofits that were struggling. So, you know, when we started Amudim, we had that benefit. A lot of people don't have that benefit. Make sure that you get good ratings on GuideStar, your transparency, try to get the highest possible seal. You know, when you hit your seven-year mark, and it's funny because I just applied for a charity navigator because we're just about to get our seventh um, annual return, which they don't allow you to even apply until you have seven full years. So hopefully we'll start that process shortly. But I've been working towards that goal of getting a good charity navigator rating from day one. It wasn't like, oh, it's something we should do. So it's every year as we've been growing, it's like, okay, let's make sure that we're following best practices, A, B, C, and D, so that by year seven, we can get onto charity navigator. So it's have goals in mind. And then the last thing I would say is look at the big picture. All too often, people start a nonprofit for a very good reason. And then either that reason no longer exists or things start shifting. And then all of a sudden, the job of the nonprofit becomes to keep the nonprofit alive. And at that point, you know, again, I understand people have to make a living, but that's usually where people start getting themselves into big trouble. When the purpose of the nonprofit is to support the people working in the nonprofit, you're heading in a bad direction. I never thought of it that way. The the purpose of the nonprofit should be to fulfill the mission for which it was initially conceived. Or if the mission is going to adapt, then you make sure that there's alignment between the board, between the key staff, and adapt the mission and then follow whatever changes there are. But if for whatever reason that neither of those two are options, and now there's really not much in the way of what you were supposed to set out to do, then it's time to close up shop. I mean, and, and I and I don't say that, you know, lightly. It's just something that you know, in the entire nonprofit sector globally, that's something that we see very, very often. And if you look at, you know, the 990s of some organizations and you look at what percentage of their budget is spent on, you know, certain things and it's like, just look at yourself in the mirror and go like, what are these people doing? But again, it's not my job. I'm not policing other nonprofits, but I just, 
you know, I enjoy helping other nonprofits know how to do things the right way because I feel that if everybody gets to a certain gold standard, it's just better for the industry as a whole. There's been too much mistrust in the nonprofit segment over the last many years, whether it was because of bad investments that nonprofits have made or whether it's because of bad decisions that people have made or whether it's because, you know, board members had a business relationship with something. So their nonprofit that they were involved in had to feed business to them. We have to bring that trust back. We have to let the public know that when you donate money to an organization, your money is going to a good place for the purpose it stated and you can sleep well at night. And by the way, it doesn't matter whether the person's a $5 donor or a $10 million donor. And I say that all the time. And this is another thing. You asked me to give advice. This is something else that's extremely important. You never know who a $5 donor really is. Two things you know for sure. Either the person doesn't really have money, which means they took $5 that they really can't afford to give and gave that. So that needs to be very much appreciated. Or it could be a multimillionaire who wants to see how you treat your $5 donors. And I always tell them, if anybody calls up with any questions, doesn't matter if they never donated, if they donated a dollar, $10 or a million dollars, we have to treat them all the exact same way. Because at the end of the day, it's the donors that keep an organization going. And if you want to fulfill your mission as the head of a nonprofit, you want to make sure that your donors are happy so that you can continue doing what you do. Wow, that was a lot of great advice packed into a very, very short amount of time. So I appreciate that. I think the listeners will appreciate that. Um, I just want to end up, I like to end up if you have a brief, like really favorite story, memorable moment um, since you've been running Amudin that you can share with us and then we'll, we'll end off. There are so many, but there was one that happened yesterday that I just think is funny. One of the people that works with Amudin, been involved with us from day one, went to uh you know, Davin at night and he comes out of shul and he hears two guys talking. And one guy says, you know, that organization Amudim that helps with travel, that when my father died, helped me get to Israel. Did you see that they're also getting involved in abuse now? And this guy calls me up. He goes, see, we got a marketing issue here. And I'm like, oh, yes, we do. But that just literally happened last night. And it was, but as far as actual Amudim, yeah, I mean, I'll say it like this. It's been just about eight years, and every step of the way has been with real miracles and growth, no matter where it was. But by far, like the, wow, this is, you know, ridiculous type of story was I had a meeting in Jerusalem with uh, the Child Welfare Agency, with the Rivacha, and we were trying to get them to understand what our, you know, Israel office is doing and the clientele there and everything that's going on. and the woman looks and we get, you know, we sit down and everybody gives each other business cards and it's a great, all of a sudden, the woman says to us, you know, there's, I got to show you something that, you know, every time a family comes in now, there's this video that we've been showing them. There's no words in it and it's really great. And I think that you guys should get permission to use it. And I'm like, okay, great. Let's see what it is. And she starts playing a video and I look at her. And I said, can you pause it? She goes, no, no, no. Why should I pause it? I said, please pause it. She pauses it. I said, you see that little emblem on the bottom right corner? She goes, yeah. I said, can you look at my business card? (laughs) Ah, this is you. I see where that's going. And I was like, yeah, this is our, they took our video shattered, which by far was one of the best, you know, I mean, they've all been great, but this was definitely one of the hardest hitting videos. 
And they're showing it to people coming in because it's completely, it's, there is no words in it at all. The entire video is, you know, just theatrical and very hard hitting, even though there's nothing spoken. And it was just like, that to me was like a huge sense of like, you know, nachat, like, wow, you know, we put out this video. One other quick, great story. And then I'm going to let you go. Cause this one also, these are, it's the small things that count. I get a voice note on WhatsApp from an unknown number a couple of years ago. It's about a three and a half minute voice note. Anyone that knows me with my ADHD knows if it's more than 11 seconds, I probably can't hear it. But I listen anyway. And very quickly, the gentleman is saying, hi, Rabbi Gluck. I just want to share with you that it's almost, I'm going to be 40 tonight. And two years ago, I watched your video PSA called Happy Birthday, Dad. And it brought back crazy memories and it led me to realize that I'm not the one that had, you know, was troubled. And it was the people that took advantage of me. And Rabbi, because of that, I went for therapy. And I am now a better father and a better husband. And I just want you to know that that video saved my life and my family. And as I'm about to celebrate my 40th birthday, I wanted to just give you a thank you. Wow. So it's like the small things that we hear that this person never actually called us, never, you know, but at the end of the day, that's the power of what we do. So there's just, and there's hundreds more like this. So overall, it's a great feeling to know that, you know, getting up in the morning and making a difference in somebody's life that day and hopefully many people. That's incredible. So if somebody wants to either donate, get involved or needs help, where should they go? So, I mean, amudim.org, you know, they can contact us for information, make a donation, request assistance. They can call us at 646-517-0222. Uh, they can email us info at amudim.org. They can also, on the website, they can find the information for the Israel locations and other things as well. And people need to also feel comfortable that if they do call us and they wish to remain anonymous, we will respect that. You know, we will save them in our database, you know, either under a pseudonym that they'll come up with or anonymous with a code or something. So if people often sometimes call, they're too scared to make that step, but they they want to call for help, but they're not really ready yet. You know, we're here. People need a place to turn. And, you know, one of the things that I try to impress upon the staff, and as I say, you know, one of the questions I often ask is, without thinking, what's the first word that comes to mind when you hear the word emergency? Usual answer is uh, heart attack, hospital, right? And I, I try to impress upon the staff, no, an emergency is whatever a person is calling for. For them, that's the biggest emergency. We may not see it as such, but for that person it is. So we have to treat each and every person that reaches out to Amudim as if they're our own family and give them the best we can. Amazing, Rabbi Gluck, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for doing this. I think people are really gonna get a lot out of this episode. Thank you so much for the opportunity. We'll definitely be in touch. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Change the World podcast. If you have any feedback or comments, or if you are a nonprofit leader who is interested in learning more about how 14 Minds can help you, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me by email at sivia at 14minds.com. For more nonprofit content, follow me on LinkedIn or visit 14minds.com to subscribe to our mailing list.